0: Love Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dolberg. I'm Mariela Wong. You can find us online and be notified of future shows at CreativityandPlay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived Editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is artist, Kimberly Camp. Kimberly is the owner of the new Gallery Marie, outside of Philadelphia. And as an arts administrator, she held leadership roles at the Smithsonian Institution and the Charles Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit. She also headed the Barnes Foundation, where John Dewey served as the first president and director of education. Kimberly is the author of the forthcoming book, Defending the Dead, The Totally True Story About the Barnes Foundation Transformation, about her time at the Barnes Foundation and its many recent changes. Kimberly Camp, welcome to Creativity and Play.
1: Thank you, Steve.
0: Well, it's very great to have you on the show. I know we've uh, talked about it for quite some time, so it's it's good to have you and uh, pick up many previous conversations we've had together. Absolutely. Well, let's start with the Barnes Foundation because <laughs> that's how we originally uh, crossed paths sort of, and, um, but particularly the, 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 the old history of the Barnes Foundation, where it all started from and, and the work that it did to really promote creative thinking and education through art. Can you tell us about the early days? Why, why did the Barnes Foundation come to be and, and what did it do to help? skills in particularly young people
1: well Barnes um, experimented with education development of the mind he was a physician uh, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and in his factory in Philadelphia he manufactured a medicine called Argerol it was a world standard was put in the eyes of babies when they were born um, and he had factories in Philadelphia and Australia and I think another location but Barnes was very interested in how the mind worked, and he used art and discussion in his factory for almost 20 years as a way to look at how people developed critical problem-solving skills. He also attended seminars with John Dewey, um, and the two men created a, had a synergy with their ideas about education and aesthetics. And so that was the basis for Barnes creating the program. Primarily, the basic tenet was – that Barnes believed artists perceived at a higher level than other people. And if he could teach people to see the way that an artist sees, it would enhance their ability to perceive, that process would build critical problem-solving skills, and you could therefore build a better democracy. So when the foundation was first created, it had seven components, which included courses, seminar work with Dewey, classes at the Barnes Foundation for artists um, and individuals, there was a summer seminar for a group of very lucky students, Barnes personally escorted and paid for all their expenses to go to the great European museums, there were the publications, and there were also consultations, and most importantly, a public component for people, working class people, to come in and see the collection. Each one of the rooms in the Barnes Foundation is heavily installed with everything that you would consider decorative and fine arts. John Dewey thought, the, and as Barnes did too, that the line between decorative and fine arts was artificial. And so he purposely installed the rooms in that way. Each one of those walls is really a classroom in aesthetics. When Barnes created the program, he had a lot of pushback, as you can imagine, from the educational community, because he was doing something new, something radical, something that had never been done before. But within 10 years of the foundation opening, there were over 130 colleges, universities, and K-12 school systems around the country using Barnes' methods um, in teaching.
2: Well, uh Kimberly, I was recently at as you know, at the Barnes Foundation, the new one, and um, I was also at your gallery Marie, and a few things about those two visits struck me one was that um at the Barnes Foundation, I didn't notice any kids, and I didn't notice any education going on, and I didn't notice any reference to Barnes himself and we had this really interesting encounter when we were in one of the galleries where we were responding to a painting, and it was an abstract painting. And we were laughing. There was three of us, all mm. responding, all laughing, talking about the painting. And the guard, or whatever you know, you want to call him, came over and said, "Stop laughing. You can't mm. laugh." And then, um, so I was, you know, we were all like. This is not what we pictured uh, this experience would be like. And then when um, I visited your new gallery, which is uh, named in honor of your mother, um, I was just so taken with that space and um, what I could see as a a real place of community and a place where education could take place. And... all everything in the gallery really pulled me in. There was a lot of mixture of this and that, you know, so that you could go here. And, and that's what I I also saw in the barns a lot of differentiation and lack of separation, like you were just saying. But um, so I wonder how you know, in, with all of that being said, right? Um, what you have to say about you know my 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 experience and also. Um, the lack of what I saw there, the lack of education, the lack of community, the lack of Barnes himself being represented.
1: Yeah. The the things that you point out really are the things that make me sad about the latest iteration of the foundation. And I think what has happened, what, you know, people ask me what was different between when it was in Marion, Pennsylvania, which was a block outside of Philadelphia. People tend to think that, you know, it's a suburb of Philly, so it was way out. It was a block away from the city border. But when I look at it there and then look at it downtown, downtown it looks more like what people would think of as a traditional museum. And so that sort of quiet reverence that somehow evolved as a behavior in an art space exists among the visitors. And I can't imagine that when I was running the foundation, and certainly not when Barnes was running the foundation, conversation and discourse were, were expected They were desired components of helping students through their own experiences and discussion about the work to find meaning, capital M. And so you have a very different kind of situation happening in large part because a lot of Barnes' ideas about art and education have been so misinterpreted and misrepresented since he died. He was killed in an automobile accident in 1951. So we have, you know, over 50 years of time when people have, over 60 years, when people have um, had opportunity to twist in many ways Barnes' ideas. And so, you know, I, I would hear people all the time when I was there say, oh, Barnes was crazy. If we could just, you know, rescue the artwork from Marion and get it to Philadelphia and everybody could see it. Well, Barnes wasn't crazy. He couldn't have been because he amassed an amazing collection, one that is envied the worldwide. Um, and I think that the... I'm hoping that in the future that the um, Barnes Foundation board and leadership will come to a different understanding about why Albert Barnes is as important as the collection that he amassed. His ideas about democracy and education and art are just as important now as they were when he started the foundation in the 1920s. We tend to not want to talk about in arts, particularly in the fine arts, the high, fine, you know, dead European painter's arts. Um, We tend to not want to talk about who we do the work for, who it's there for, how we want them to access it. And I'll give you an example. Many museums uh, have our hours, for example, that are, you know, 10 to 6, 10 to 5, Tuesday through Saturday, Sunday 12 to 5. Working-class people can't go to a museum on Wednesday at 5 o'clock in the afternoon or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so, you know, do we really want to focus on middle-class, working-class people, lower-class people? If we did as a museum world, as a museum society, we'd have evening hours every day. We would encourage people to come after they finish their shift work, after they finish their meals with their families, to come to the museum and spend that leisure time instead of propped up in front of a television, for example. Barnes believed things about the way the public interfaces with art that people in the museum field and some of the arts community have been slow to embrace. The, the, the way that Barnes did it in encouraging students to talk about the work and encouraging students to develop a critical eye about aesthetics, about ideas about beauty, about what were artists thinking, how, what techniques were they using, how were they using line and light and color. You can't get those things just walking through a space in silence with headphones on. And I believe, I've always believed, there is room in this world for more than one way to experience great art. And if the Barnes doesn't do it in its future, I'm hoping that some institutions somewhere begin to look at these ideas, because all of this, you know, art in the white box with the label in the lower left-hand corner, those are very contemporary ideas. Even when the Museum of Modern Art started out in New York, um, Alfred Barr, um, who was the first director there, said that he credited Barnes with helping him understand modern art, and it was installed in many ways very similar to what the Barnes is now. So we have this evolution of ideas and an elitism that comes into the arts that belies all the things we talk about when we talk about reaching a broader audience. There were things that I believed in. And so in creating my gallery, and people that walk in my gallery, they say, oh, you know, there's this Barnes influence. Well, Barnes and I actually had a synergy in terms of how we look at it. And it's how a lot of artists look at their work is, you know, this whole integration. No artist that I know of creates things in a little white box. We surround ourselves with the things that inspire us, the things that make us curious, the things that make us laugh. We surround ourselves with textures and colors and things, and that's what forms the creative space through which the work emerges. And so Barnes understood that. He spent a lot of time talking to artists about what they did and why they did it. Um, uh, The community right now, the arts community, the fine arts community, not so much anymore. So I'm hoping that that changes in the future.
0: We've been uh, talking a lot about your arts administrator hat role that you've played in in many uh, institutions, but you also are an artist in your own right, and and particularly in in painting and and dolls. Tell us about the dolls, first of all, the African dolls that you... um, Which you mentioned, people can see on your website, KimberlyCamp.com. There's several uh, pictures of of the dolls you created as well as your paintings. But the dolls are uh, always uh, fascinating uh, as long as I've known you and seen them.
1: Thank you. I started making dolls actually in the mid '80s. I've been working as an artist for I can't believe it, 46 years. I started painting 46 years ago. I started doing the dolls in the early '80s, and it was really a one-time thing. To make some extra money for one of the holidays and I and a friend of mine decided we would make um, dolls in African dress um, and authenticate each one of them by country we had 32 different kinds male and female three different sizes it was madness I tell you but we made a bunch of dolls and took them to a festival and sold out in three hours and people were running up saying can I order can I order can I order and that's sort of how it got started within a year the dolls were in essence magazine i had sort of reformulated the company and the partnership to kim Kins, which was the name actually my dad gave the dolls um, and they were in essence magazine and then they were in national geographic world magazine i used to do um, international mail order um, and did about two thousand dolls a year a lot of big craft shows i sold the jc pennies i had a booth in one of the downtown malls in philadelphia And then it was in – so I did that for a long time. But in 1989, my mother came down with a uh, blood poisoning, and it had advanced pretty far before uh, she was hospitalized. And so in watching her every day get stuck with these needles of nurses trying to put uh, intravenous antibiotics in her, one day I grabbed a leather coat and a pair of scissors and a needle and thread, and as I was sitting in the hospital watching her, I started cutting up this coat, and sewing it into dolls. And that's what started me doing the artist one of a kind uh, pieces it was around 1989, 1990. And now those are primarily what I do. And they range from six inches to six feet. I use all different kinds of materials by Virtue of my having a wonderful experience as a museum president and, and traveling all over the world, was able to collect materials everywhere that I went, and I use those to create dolls that, and sometimes, are very whimsical. Sometimes they're, they're sort of you know, awe-inspiring or desperate-looking, and sometimes they're just fun. And sometimes they look like statues, but they're fun for me. They are for me my play when I'm in the studio, and I found. Um, All of the influences, be they from different countries, different cultures, different times and periods, they all sort of come together when I'm making dolls. So it's a very almost um, subconscious way of assembling each one. They sort of, as I like to say, they sort of form themselves when they get to a point where they decide what they want to be. Um, And sometimes I have no idea where they're going to end up. Um, But... Um, so far so good a lot of people really enjoy looking at them and I've uh, shown them all over they've been published internationally and every now and then I still go back to doing some Kim because they're still people's favorites and I have some of them in the gallery now but it's been a long God over 30 years that I've been making I never thought I'd ever say that that I was still making well
2: Kimberly uh Back to the arts now. What um, role do you see the arts playing in making of our culture? Big question. And, or what role do you see the arts playing in areas like social equity and diversity and democracy?
1: Well, it is, it's a huge question. And I think that um, more broadly, it's the arts and, uh, as an expression of each col- culture that helps to define who we are as a country. Um, this country, as you know we all know, is made up of people from all over the world and here um, that have, in many ways, kept some of their traditions while sharing others, while creating new ones. and the important thing is to continue to strive to look at art on an equal plane. This whole issue of cultural equity is really critical because we still tend to look at high fine art, decorative art, craft as occupying different spaces of importance in our societies. And our museums and art institutions are in large part to blame for perpetuating those ideas because we still separate things supposedly to sort of encourage scholarly research and to create areas and institutions where um, a body of work can be seen or a certain period can be seen or a certain region without looking more broadly and saying, okay, this is what was happening here. These are the other things that were happening at the same time in other places. I remember once I had a, um, a disagreement, I'll say with a very, very good friend of mine um, who was Anne Darnincourt and I miss her dearly. She was running the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and we had this conversation about the, um, the Elgin marbles and how there was a fight to repatriate them and to return them to the country that they were. And I said to Anne, I was, you know, half joking, but maybe not, <laughs> imagine if every institution had to mine their own community for their treasures, send everybody else's stuff back, and had to actually go into their community and find those things, that other institutions want because they're in that community and not theirs. Imagine how exciting and dynamic the art world would become. Imagine what we could do for people's ideas about importance and culture because people go into institutions for edification. They go in to see if the silver that's in the case looks like the silver that grandma had, i.e. grandma must have been important. And we can't discount the importance of these institutions and how they sort of inform how we look at those. Then there's a whole alternate reality of communities, artists-run organizations, individual artists, who don't pay any attention to that stuff. And that's where I think in this country the dynamism exists. And we still have to strive to make sure that those voices are evenly heard. Because even within the media, and a lot of people sort of get their cues from where art happens and how good it is from the media, we still go back to some of these institutions in society that we need to work with to enhance their vocabularies, to enhance their ability to really look more broadly um, in order to be able to hear all of those voices. The Grantmakers in the Arts, um, which is a very important organization in this country in terms of promoting um, and cultivating the arts, recently in their conference began once again to explore this whole issue of cultural equity and diversity and how are the arts being supported. And I think that when others begin to look at this again, um, hopefully we'll make some more progress. We were getting there in the mid-'80s. There were a lot of things going on that were really encouraging people in their own communities to look and see what different cultures and different ideas and different explorations, different adventures were bringing into the arts. And we sort of settled back into old ideas. And we see that going across all of society, all of politics, going backward into these old ideas. I think it's artists and people who are creative that are going to have to sort of lead the charge and say, "Uh uh-uh, we were going in the right direction before, let's get back on track. Because without, and I've I've always said a very simple formula, When when you give people art and they begin to embrace art, the arts is the first step to political empowerment and social empowerment. Because when people feel that excitement, that energy, that synergy, whether it's dance or music or visual arts or poetry or literature, they always want more. And when they want more, they motivate themselves to do the things in those communities in order to get more, in order to provide it for others so that they can share it. And that's what politically motivates people to begin to say, let me look at my broader community. You know, my kids enjoyed this. I enjoyed this. I want the kids in my classroom, my kids' classroom, to also enjoy this. So it's a very important step and a very big question that you ask. but I think if people take it upon themselves to just start small, and you know, every individual decide they're going to do something every day, we can actually get there. I believe that.
0: So you're you're sort you're sort of doing this in your new gallery. I I take it from from afar.
1: I uh, absolutely artist, am. I uh, you know, people come in and they see artists from Colombia, they see artists from um, Italy, they see my art, they see. Um, all kinds of things, ethnographic material. There's masks. There are terracotta monkeys from India. Um, there are, you know, painted birds in boots and um, masks from from Mali. And and I talk to people a lot when they come in about what they're looking at, about the fact that there's a broad diversity of artists, each one of them trying to sort of explore different ideas, different components, um, and you know how. Because people come in and it distresses me terribly because they said, oh, you know, it's black art. No, it's not. Yes, I'm African-American and my art is in here, but there's, you know, no, not such thing, actually. Um, (laughs) Very diverse offerings. But I think, you know, as I have conversations with people about things from Haiti versus things from China versus things I have in the gallery from Japan, they begin, I can see a little twinkle start in their eye. It's not a very, my gallery is not a very traditional space. It's not white box gallery. It's not, you know, change the show once a month and feature a highlighter. It's just not that. It is a place that I want people to come in and understand that the arts is goes far and wide, that people can afford original art. They don't have to buy prints. I hate that. Um, you know, you can buy original artwork from artists who are alive. And I tell a lot of artists, and so many of us have museums in our houses and our galleries and our studios. The, with this idea that somehow, you know, after we're gone, everyone is going to love our work just like Van Gogh. Well, no, it's not going to happen. Sometimes it does. More often not. So put your work out there. Let people enjoy it. Let people, you know, buy it and put it in their homes. You can always make more. You're still an artist. You know, so so, it is um, some different ideas that I informed it with because I think they're important.
2: Kimberly, really, before we end our show today, I, I want to be sure that we talk about your upcoming book, "Defending the Dead." First of all, I wonder why you um, why that might be the title and the subtitle, "The Totally True Story About the Barnes Foundation Transformation." Um, but and also, besides the title and what led you to the uh, that. Those wor- that wording, is um, what are the gifts that you hope people will, who read it will take away from the book? What are you, what are you hoping? What's your intention behind the book or well, intentions?
1: The book is, is the story because I was president and CEO for the Barnes all throughout the hearings and the petitions, and I read Dr. Barnes' archives in my spare time because there were so many stories that didn't make sense to me. You know, why would Barnes hire John Dewey as the first director of education and not want to let people in to see the collection? Why would, it, you know, why would he not want anybody to copy the work, quote-unquote, copy the work, when in fact he had a, several official photographers who took photographs of his work and distributed the images of the collection? There were all these things that didn't make sense. So um, in the book, what I have done is, first of all, identify all of the players, um, who are the individuals who are comprise this story, starting with Albert Barnes, including Fidel, who was his dog, who at one point was also his foreign secretary, and that's a whole other story. Um, she <laughs> about what the basic tenets of the Barnes were and who I am, how I came to be there, and what I found when I got there. Um, it was a horribly dysfunctional organization, and over the period of... Um, Three years retired, a $3.7 million deficit, um, and turned the foundation around, brought in a professional staff, began the collection assessment project, which was critical because people could run around and say, oh, the Barnes has 181 Renoirs. I said, show me a list of all of them. Well, we don't have a list. Well, (laughs) do we have 181? Um, You know, so we really had to get a handle on what the collection was, the breadth of it, how important it was, because it was the intellectual, and financial future of the foundation, and then I talk about in the book how the idea about the move evolved and what actually happened in court. Um, some of the book contains actual quotations from the judge's ruling so that there is no room for speculation and mythology, and people coming in and saying, "Well, my opinion is about you know, for example, we never changed Dr. Barnes' will." I can't tell you how many times I told the media that, and people, and they still say, we changed the will. We did not. The Barnes was not bankrupt when we went into court. We had a cash surplus, and we had no debt. Um, So the reason for the move was not financial. Um, The Barnes was never closed to the public by Barnes. It was done so by local township officials in the location where it was, Um, but it wasn't something that Barnes had um, in in his papers about how he was running the foundation. And so the book really does tell the story. How did we get there? Why we did it? What happened in court? Um, and it sort of ends with a story that I like to tell about um, the barns in that last spring that I was there, which um, I think was was really a defining moment. It was the last time that that art collection um, and that arboretum would be joined in that way that people could see them. I'm hoping that people take away there's one basic idea Barnes was brilliant his ideas were just as important as his collection all of the things that he was doing were to build a better democracy they were not to make it elitist they were not to take it from this and put it there they were not only his ideas it was about building a better democracy and I, I have been trying to get this book published for two years now and um, <laughs> I'm hoping I'm not ready to give up. It has been the most frustrating thing that I have ever done because I have just lately someone said, oh, we're not going to take it because all that stuff has already been addressed. Well, it has been talked about, but it's all the information that's out there. With the exception of one book by Richard Wattenmaker, a lot of it is still misinformation and not researched based on the archives. So I'm going to keep going. If you know, if the only of your listeners is a literary agent or a publisher, get in touch with me because I would love to get this book out. Um, I think it's really
0: important. Thank you so thank much. Kimberly, thank you so much for exploring a wide, wide breadth of uh, topics today with uh, the intersection, of course, of, of your life and work as an artist. And uh, we very much appreciate you joining us today on Creativity and Play.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure, and for listeners you want to get on my website, you can go to KimberlyCamp.com or also GalleryMarie.net, and it's spelled the French way, G-A-L-E-R-I-E Marie.net and you can see some of my work and a couple of articles I wrote after the opening of the barns but it's been a real pleasure to be with you today, I've really enjoyed this
0: Thank you very much Kimberly Camp is an artist, arts administrator, and the owner of Gallery Marie outside of Philadelphia Our theme music is kindergarten composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again, find more information about our guests, and sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg.
2: And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for joining us today. We really enjoyed it.
1: My pleasure.